In this episode, we talk to two artists, Tally Hinkus, one half of the art duo Lovid that began back in 2000, and Daniel Temkin, who should be no stranger to hyperallergic readers as he's written a number of articles about digital art and coding. I've invited them together to talk about their lives as artists in the digital space. Both of them have built reputations as individuals who are interested in challenging conventions, and they've both been showing more and more recently as people are waking up to their work. They were both part of Digital Compines at Honor Fraser Gallery in Los Angeles earlier this year. It was an exhibition organized by artist Claudia Hart, who coined the term Digital Combine for art that joins a tangible object with its virtual equivalent. For art nerds, you'll know that the term itself is winking a little at artist Robert Rauschenberg, who first used the term Combine for his own work that integrated three-dimensional objects and paintings. And Tally, or Lovid more correctly, currently has an exhibition up at Postmasters Gallery in Manhattan. It showcases their own interdisciplinary work and how technology continues to bleed into our lives. I'm Hrag Vartanian, the host of the Hyperallergic podcast and the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. We have also asked the artists, both of whom are of Jewish heritage, to reflect on their own identities and how it may or may not have influenced their art. This conversation is part of a larger exploration we've been doing here at Hyperallergic with the help of Canvas, exploring the contours of new creativity in the arts around Judaism and Jewish heritage. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Daniel Tumpkin. I'm an artist and writer. Hi, I'm Tali Hinkis, and I'm also known as Lovid, which is my artist name, part of lifelong collaboration with Kyle Lapidus, and I'm an artist. Great. So both of you have been invited because I, I really wanted to have us sort of listen to both of you, both artists that work in the digital space, currently in a show together in Los Angeles at the Honor Fraser Gallery in Los Angeles. And both of you have been in sort of dialogue with each other and also your practices overlap in some ways in terms of some of the ideas and materiality and different sort of things that you both use. So I wanted to invite you both here so we can listen in a little bit about your practice and uh, the friendship and relationships and network that emerge out of making art. Wonderful. So one thing about this, this show in LA right now, um, it was curated by Claudia Hart, and her concept was the digital combine, which is based on Rauschenberg, and the, the combine is a combination of painting and sculpture. In this show, it's a combination of a physical piece in some kinds that usually has some connection with painting, although not necessarily, um, with a digital piece that's experienced mostly by running the QR code on your phone and seeing some sort of uh, digital piece. And the idea is that those two things together are the piece itself. And I thought what was interesting about this for us is that that combination of the purely digital piece and the physical piece kind of speaks to the artists who we were maybe 10 years ago, represented more with the digital piece and the kind of work that we've been doing over the last five, six years uh, that's more represented in the physical piece. And I was thinking about that, especially for, for your work, uh, Tali. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, I, I want to add a little something about the exhibition that Claudia 
curated is that it's actually also around a very specific aspect of NFTs. It is an NFT and physical object exhibition. And in this particular case, Claudia designed a smart contract that binds the physical work with the NFT. So they're inseparable and basically are conceived as one one piece that cannot be broken apart. So for uh, Lovid's work, we've been working for over 20 years now, and we really started as a noise band, an audiovisual noise band. And for, for many years, kind of debated to keep the name Lovid or not, but just kind of stayed with it, because in many ways, it still holds. It's still what we do. And it is uh, working with analog equipment synthesizers to create a visual, audiovisual objects, lots of different things. But the source material is always video synthesizers. So for me, the relationship between um, mediated object, time-based video and works and physical objects are always kind of from there from the beginning, from the instruments to uh, making costumes and then prints and with the work now, uh, these tapestry works. But it's interesting with, with your piece because there's, for the digital component, you have a piece of video and it's, it's people hugging. Um, reunited after COVID separation, right? That's sort of the, the the concept. It looks like video feedback. There's some sort of video feedback happening as well. And it has sort of an analog and digital meeting kind of feel to it. And then you've translated that into the physical piece as a textile work. So actually for a while now, I've been working in the space between video and textiles. And, you know, I've been doing that for, you know, maybe 10 years, but moving more and more in that direction. And I, you know, it's the starting point is always video and the video is always made with analog equipment. So it has that physicality. And when Kyle and I perform, it's a physical, very tactile experience. We're not sitting behind laptops. We're standing with big equipment and lots of cables. You know, it's, it's material-based. It's a very material-based video. And, you know, starting to print these images on fabric is something that I've been doing for a while. And first I was putting them on costumes and then making small pieces with them. Uh, This new series, the hugs are actually kind of pod hugs. It's people who are in pods during the pandemic and started from not being able to see people and asking them to send me videos of a hug. In many cases, the hugs are performances. There are many physical interactions and many choreographies that happen in domestic settings often, and they really reflect our history as in performance. And the video is not, I wouldn't call it feedback at all. It's synthesizer-based video, so it's not feedback refers to the idea that it's a kind of a no input usually set up where you take a camera. Traditionally, you know, the early feedback was taking a camera, pointing it onto a monitor, kind of a Numjoon Paik thing. You loop it in and you kind of eventually get this um, infinite repetition that happens. And there are many artists who have mastered it and still doing things with it that are often fresh and interesting. This is not feedback at all in most cases. It's synthesizer video. So meaning that we're not working primarily with digital tools and working with analog equipment. A lot of them we've built ourselves. And so it's sort of a whole other, it's really more kind of analog computing in some cases and highly composed. Uh, And I have collection of, you know, probably, I don't know, hundreds of hours of recording from the past 20 years that I use for these animations. 
So tell me, you want to talk about the piece that you have in the exhibition? And sure. You've been making these paintings for a while, and uh, you had a, a beautiful show during the pandemic that I saw online because it was, you know, lockdown days, but I did see it and heard your talk also. So maybe talk a little bit about that. So Dither Studies is a project that began for me in uh, 2011. I had opened a file in Photoshop uh, in index mode expecting it to be a solid color, and instead I got this kind of crazy pattern, this crazy pixelated pattern. I became very curious about what generated it, uh, and it turned out it was error diffusion dithering, which is this very simple algorithm that uses nothing more than sixth grade math. It's something that any of us could do by hand if we had to. It might take us a little while to calculate each each pixel, but uh, but the point is it's it's very, very simple, and yet as the pixels are generated going down to the image, the pattern's feel more and more complicated. And for me, that really just spoke to the way that logic can feel very irrational to us, the way that we bring our own irrationality to, to a logical system. And it only takes a tiny bit of complexity before that irrationality shows up. And for me, somebody who had worked for a long time as a programmer and you know, found that work very, it, it was kind of a constant reminder that, that we are not logical thinkers of writing code, trying to, to translate your thoughts into logic, just shows how alien logic is to human thought. Uh, and so that's just something that I, I, I think about a lot. So like you, I had carried this from a purely digital expression with the generated images to actually carrying these out by hand, um, painting them on large pieces. And for me, that really kind of reinforces the meeting of, of the human and the machine together, or the, the human and the logical system together by doing, doing it by hand in that way. Can I interfere for a second? Because sure. I kind of feel like there's a really nice connection there. I actually never heard you talk about your work with these exact terms before, kind of how you got into the thing. And I love how we already are like super specific with what terminology we each use, right? And I think that's something that have sort of reconnected us again and again. And maybe um, if we can speak in a kind of broad term of generations of artists, and we just talked about how maybe, you know, we've sort of overlapped, but maybe have had different trajectories during different times. I do think that we both are in that specific era where we've been questioning technologies and looking for its vulnerabilities. You know, definitely for us, uh, you're talking about this idea of logic and for us, it's always been this idea of sync, you know, the sync synchronized video. If video, if the equipment is not synchronized, it will be like blue, like, like you, you can't see the electronic signal. And so I think those moments of exploring these vulnerabilities as places of beauty and poetry in many cases is what is kind of in some cases the essence that uh, really connects our practices and also has put us in some shows together around glitch. Yeah, it's interesting because it's probably been about 10 years since the last time that we showed together, right? There was a sort of this, this big break where we weren't really, mm -hmm. we were in a bunch of shows together, I think like around 2011 or so. In fact, I think that I first met you when one curator, was it called Local Project Space? I don't remember. It was in uh, Queens. It was like in Long Island City. Yeah, right? it was in the Five Points building yeah. when it was when oh, it was still yeah. there. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And, and somebody had actually combined my piece fingers <laughs> together into one thing, which I thought was awesome. And I was so excited. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm in a Lovid piece, you know. Um, and, and I think you were sort of like, oh, who is this guy? But you were really chill about it, which is great. Can I, can I just ask you to describe that piece a little bit for those who may not have seen it? 
Sure. So I think so it, this was probably like around I would say 2007 or six because it was early, kind of mid. No, would it that was, make sense to you? Well, it would have been. I wasn't really doing shows yet in, mm. in 2006, so okay. it, was de- it was definitely a little bit later. Maybe 2012 to 2013, sort of around then. And I, I feel like, you know, I was looking at your website, and I feel like maybe it was a variation of, of, of Roots Not Shoots. It no, that, it was no, it 486 wasn't. Shorts, no? Oh, yeah, yeah, right. It was yeah. 486 Shorts. That's right. But the reason I was thinking of that is because it kind of had this pile of screens, the way that, that it, it was curated it was kind of these entangled screens as a kind of a sculptural object. And, mm-hmm. and most of them had, had your pieces and some of them had my piece, which was a, a piece I don't really show anymore, but it was, it was it was a pile of monitors at the dump that I had animated and they were turning all these different colors. And actually it kind of had a little bit of a low-vid feel to it, which I think is why they, they got combined together. Yeah, I can talk a little bit about 486 Shorts because maybe you've installed, I don't know if you did the Klitsch festivals, but, um, you know, after a while, like many years of traveling with a lot of equipment and, you know, in the early 2000s, exhibiting media-based work was a lot more complicated and not all institutions have had available, you know, the most recent technology. We kind of started designing installations where we provide the content and it was all about them assembling any kind of e-waste that they could find, (laughs) discarded monitors and players to run and kind of set it up whichever way they wanted. And so that piece, 46 Shores, had actually... A real glitch that we did kind of on a DVD DVD release and so it could tour the world and we didn't have to go there we can just kind of pass it on and let the curators uh, you know put together a pile of monitors that they found um, on their own so that was it yeah before we continue do you mind defining glitch for those who may we not know we were just gonna say yes <laughs> um, thanks for asking <laughs> <gasps> well what are we okay do you want to define glitch well, well I think that glitch when I think about glitch my, my first thought, especially in New York, is something growing out of the circuit bending movement and the, the idea of hardware-based works where people would rewire them in some ways to capture error or make them function in a way that they're not really supposed to. And then Glitch is something that came about taking that kind of approach, but in the, the, in the software world. Like Usually we hear Glitch in terms of, of the purely digital, not in terms of hardware, but, but in terms of software. And often it has to do with introducing error or finding error that has been introduced accidentally that creates certain aesthetic effects and that sort of break up the continuity of the image in a way that feels like an error to us. And, and it speaks to our, in some way, to our relationship with that with that image. Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be an image, right? Like the essence of glitch is that it's a function of, of technology. It's the moment where technology right. kind of breaks down for whatever reason, mm-hmm. human, you know, environmental, time, any of that. And uh, in our case, you know, the, the analog equipment, it's not glitch. And I, I wouldn't call it glitch because it's not digital, right. but it is. it does have that, con- contain that same vulnerability of technology, which is what, you know, we're... I'm, passionate about. In some ways, so we started working in the early 2000s, and it was the hardware hacking and kind of circuit bending scene was big, really big then. And by all means, I don't think we had any awareness to it at the time. But kind of looking at now, I think this was a kind of a post-September 11 moment, where collapse of society, fragility of our infrastructure, uh, distrust, and it really was a kind of underground aesthetic response to real political situation that we were living in. 
So I do see glitch in a very, not just an aesthetic, but also mm-hmm. very political mm-hmm. way. Also kind of reowning your equipment, taking ownership of what software, what images you're outputting. That's actually an interesting point because it's really been reduced it has. Really has. to a type of aesthetic sort yes. of like malfunctioning. Mm-hmm. It's Do you a, know? It's a kind of default retro digital look. That's right. And people just That's throw right. around the word glitch. You know, online people sometimes refer to my tapestries as glitch tapestries for right. really, you know, like an honest mistake. I think they want to say it sort of looks old school. Well, it does tie tie into the nostalgia a little, kind of in the way 8-bit. You remember a few years ago, 8-bit was everywhere. Well, those two things I think are are really connected. I mean, I I feel like I kind of grew up in in Glitch a little bit because when I was really starting out as an artist, I was very immersed in, in, in Glitch. And I was volunteering at the tank for circuit bending events and the Bent Festival and that sort of thing. And that was one of the first places I showed work was at the Bent Festival. And also, I was sharing my work on Flickr, and that's how I met people like like Rosa Mankman and other people associated with Glitch. But the thing that I always connected with in Glitch was that giving up some control to the machine, like the, the whole thing with the computer is that it gives you this illusion that you're really in control, that you can make an image look the way that you want, and, and code creates this illusion that we can sort of create anything. And that's always, and this is something that that goes back to, uh, like something that Joseph Weizenbaum wrote about compulsiveness in coding in the '70s, the idea that that the programmer, you know, makes their own world, and yet the computer is is always showing them evidence that they're doing it incorrectly. It's always the programmer's fault that they didn't get things right, right? <laughs> so the the thing, the glitch, sort of breaks through that a little bit by we don't. We don't have total control, and we don't need to. We can start a process, and at some point, the computer takes over in a way because we're misusing these tools. So one of the processes that I really liked in Glitch was was something called sonification, uh, Mm -hmm. which was taking an image, bringing it into a sound editor, doing all the editing as sound, just looking at the sound wave, and then bringing it back into Photoshop and looking at how the sound effects that I put on those image, images affected how they look. And so it's something that Kurt Kloninger describes as using a very blunt tool that has a mind of its own, like mm-hmm. a, a very blunt, uh, I, I think he's, he's paintbrushes. And so it's sort of like we can set things in motion. I, I sort of know if I put a delay effect, it's going to sort of offset each line of pixels a little bit, but I don't know exactly what's going to happen because it's not designed, I'm not using the tool the way it's designed to be used. And so it creates something that's sort of like a repeatable process that can lead me to unexpected and, and, and new discoveries that, that are much more interesting than what I could really do by sort of just writing my own code mm-hmm. um, from scratch in that way. I mean, there's something about authenticity, right? I mean, I in some way, our nostalgia is for an era where artists working in media had to create their own environments and tools from scratch because they were not available. Mm-hmm. And now with you know, all tools imaginable or available for artists and all the same tools for all artists, is it harder to find an authentic voice style process in in some cases? You know, and I think that the way I think we've addressed that issue is to find a process and an image that is created from a very sort of hidden place, a place that no one else maybe would look and explore that zone of uncertainty. Yeah, I feel like authenticity 
has been and nostalgia have both been sort of issues in Glitch from the very beginning. You know, when I really got into Glitch, like 2007 or so, um, you know, all the talk then was like, oh, everyone's third wave, like Glitch is over. And, and like all the stuff that we're making just feels really nostalgic and whatever. And then it's the same thing the next year. It's the same thing the year after that. It's like when I talk to, to glitch artists working today, like young people, they're like, like, oh, you know, you're like OG glitch. You were doing this in like, you know, 2013 or whatever. It's, you know, so it's, it's just interesting that when it got aestheticized, which happened pretty quickly, it became so much of the, the, of the focus was on on the aesthetic and, and the way that people were able to kind of recreate that aesthetic in ways that sort of ran against certain glitch philosophies. The idea that we causing glitches to happen on purpose is kind of cheating in some way. Right, you know, that, right, that right. That whole conversation. Yeah, yes. You, you really had to put yourself out there at a time to kind of, um, you know, have real life experiences where things really do fall right apart. Yeah. <laughs> and and I think kind of just to give in another context, when we're talking about things right now, I think I'm thinking of the NFT space kind of pretty particularly. And and I would add on to this new or continuous way of looking at glitches, analog video is super prominent for some reason on NFTs. <laughs> like there's a lot of nostalgia and NFTs, yes, right? Yes. I, there's a lot of dithers in NFTs. I mean this is something I mm. hear a lot from people because uh, you know, obviously, I'm very associated with with dithering, and I've been. This is the first time I've done anything that's NFT related. Is, is for this show, and I, I've had a lot of people ask me why I'm not making kind of dithery NFTs. And the truth is that, like, I feel like it's so crowded with very nostalgic looking mm-hmm. dither dithered stuff, and it's mostly because people really like this this kind of video game '90s aesthetic that looks very dithered, or or other types of of nostalgic, uh, computationally nostalgic dithered looks. And I've mm-hmm. kind of wanted to separate my work a little bit from that because that's that's really not what I'm what I'm interested in. And there, there is something about the NFT space and the way that these things are shared on these platforms that kind of flattens everything and makes them all. It makes them all kind of seem the same in that way. Yeah, the uh, elephant in the room, right? As we said, the NFTs. It's not. It's not easy for all of us who have been working for twenty years plus. You know, yeah. it's not easy to figure out how and if to enter it. So, definitely, I, I feel yeah. I'm. So can we talk a little bit about these categories? I mean, I know another term like post-internet and all these, like how useful are they in this space? And I'm just curious because I get a sense, at least in the digital space, and I just want to mention that both Tali and Daniel have invited me to join their conversation when I initially, (laughs) so I'm just sort of uh, joining the conversation. I'm curious how useful they are in terms of, because I feel like they kind of almost become antiquated so quickly. You know, like you talk about dithering, how it became like, you know, a whole different or glitch became an aesthetic and it's sort of deracinated from this like older idea of like whatever it was and the theoretical sort of. And I'm curious, like how useful these are for you as artists. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny that you bring up post-internet because, uh, you know, I've been thinking that the, the show that, that we're in now, where it has work by digital artists that are physical pieces in a gallery, I think five years ago, maybe eight years ago, it would have been put in that category of, of post-digital or, or post-internet, which I don't know if that was ever a very useful category, but it seems to be the category of work that is that grows out of digital practice or internet-based practice brought into the gallery world through physical objects. It, it didn't seem to really mean a lot more than that, right? But it, I feel like it was often used in kind of a negative way to sort of criticize artists that were maybe artificially bringing their stuff in, into the gallery space in a way that it doesn't 
where it doesn't necessarily belong, that like the real internet art is, is the stuff that lives online. And it, what's interesting about that for you and me, Tali, is that work for, for both of us is very sort of performative and a lot of her work is online. And, you know, for me through more through like interactive tools that I make and, and you through various types of performance that are not connected to physical objects in that way. Mm-hmm. But the thing now is that Nobody seems to really care about post-internet anymore because that isn't where artists are making money, or, or I don't know if they ever were really making money, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to, the, to the gallery system doing that so much. Now everything's focused on, on the NFT and the way that people are, the kind of phony way that people are making NFTs or whatever. I guess. Um, I guess, to me, it seems that the whole terminology really comes from the academic and the funding world. You know, I think a lot about how uh, for artists working with technology in a broad sense, we've been called different things <laughs> at different times. You know, in the 70s, it was electronic arts. So any institution organization that's been around since the 70s will have the word electronic arts in it somewhere. And something I really like about it, that it's a very broad definition. It's a very wide tent for anyone who's working with technology and technology-based can mean so many different things. And I'm sure there's connections to then how art schools are formed and what departments they have, right? Do they have an electronic art department? Do they have a digital art department? Do they have a film and video department? Those kind of institutions, you start to put yourself in these categories and then you have to write artist statements and you have to decide what grants you apply for. And a lot of the funding until, you know, two minutes ago for this kind of work was through grants and fellowship and the not-for-profit section, which I, you know, a sector that I, I was primarily funded by for like 15 years. You know, after there was, a, you know, time where it was new media artists, you know, we were new media artists for a long time. Is um, it not new media anymore? I feel like it's not, <laughs> like who uses the term new media, right? <laughs> I think you had a good point about it. It sort of feels generational. It sort of reveals more about your origins in the field in some ways than it, it doesn't, you know. But you're right. New media is not, I mean, it's used, but it's certainly not, it feels almost incomplete. Do you know? Because I feel like... It's 2000-y for me, yeah. kind of like... You know, I want more specificity, maybe. I mean, I you know, c- call me whatever. You know, I'm I, I'm also sort of in terms of these categories, they all feel um, not entirely representative. Like I don't yeah. know why I need to define myself as something more specific than artist. Honestly, like I don't I don't particularly care. The dentist office, maybe I have to say I'm not a painter. But then there's the specific things of you know, we, are you using the term glitch? you know, the, the analog video, all these kind of more specific that are more your artist statement, right? So in some cases, also are NFTs changing how and if artists have to write artist statements? Maybe they don't need to anymore. Maybe it's just a tag. Maybe we just are now just tagging ourselves. It's just, that's kind of what the next kind of genre uh, is. And whatever, I, I don't know that I feel, uh, the one thing I was, you know, so, Definitely, I've felt like they have been words that I have used in the past to in my artist statements that I cannot use anymore. And what's the word? I forgot it now. <laughs> Wait a second. Oh, immersive. Oh, yes. Is immersive. <laughs> I immersive think all these, art. Immersive has been ruined. Immersive yeah. has yeah, been yeah, ruined. It has been ruined. Yes. Absolutely. It was a word that I, you know, loved because the idea that you can give a certain physical 
interpretation to what it's like to be online or watch a video by having big projections and different elements and it's an immersive experience. I mean, I can never use that word again. Well, it's also very much about the body, right? Yeah. The immersion uh, mm-hmm. it suggests a physicality. But now it's been ruined. Sorry, Tali. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> well, I, I just wanted to say, you know, I, I was never very comfortable with, with digital artists at all for, for my own work. I, I see myself, my work is more computational. And especially when it comes to the, the dither studies, because this is, you know, it's, it's a work that ultimately deals with our relationship with logic. It's not really our relationship with, with the technology. That's, that's what we explore it through. But that's not what, that's not what it's about for me. And, and, and there's something about making it too much about screens that I just don't really, I don't like. I think it gets away from the main idea of it. So digital... It's never been something I've been super comfortable with. The thing about computational art is that I feel like it's more associated with with people who come from a literary background, uh, people who do generative poetry and that type of thing. Um, <laughs> but for me, it seems to be the, the best term that, I, that I've found so far. But like, so for example, with the other studies that I have in the show, you know, sometimes they're described as paintings because they are large boards that I have put paint on. But f- for me, they are sort of a painting th- third, you know, first it's a form of computational art. And then secondly, I see them uh, as, a, as photography, kind of cameraless photography that has to do with the kind of the fundamental photographic algorithm of, of dithering. And then it was important to actually render these by hand. So I, I've always tried to describe them with hand renders rather than paintings, mm. which of course nobody actually I follows. love that. Why don't you keep doing <laughs> I love that. And then also, I sort of liked the idea that the first time I was doing an NFT, I was going to tie it to, uh, you know, a, a 12 by nine, a 12 by nine, 12 by eight painting on wooden boards. So if someone was going to try to like flip the art to, you know, it means that they're going to actually have to deliver this large, heavy object to somebody else. <laughs> it's my, my kind of little protest against the type of focus NFTs have brought within digital art. I have several questions about your process because I'm, I sure. love process. How do you output the images? Is it like screen grabs or do you like export various things so, so, and kind of select from them the ones you like? So I wrote a web app for, for Tither Studies in 2014. And so that was when I was dealing with square pixels still. One of the things with the, with the new series is that to even kind of further remove it from the idea of, of, of screens and technology, I've, I've moved to triangular pixels where it, it's not quite as... Uh, the, the connection with the digital is sort of a little bit more, uh, there's a little more distance. So I wrote a machine learning algorithm that kind of would discover what kind of dithering would work for, for triangles. And I have pieces that are equilateral triangle pixels or square, right triangular pixels or hexagons and so on. So basically, I guess my first point is that I'm going to be releasing a new version of Dither Studies as an interactive tool online. And that's really important to me that people are able to sort of generate their own on my website. It's not just like, okay, I've selected these ones and I've sort of painted these ones. So these are sort of the, the precious art objects. The idea is it's, it's, it's this whole conversation and, and it's something that other people can do as well through the, through the tool. But yeah, so basically I use the tool that I wrote and I generate the patterns. And, and it gives you one pattern per... Yeah, so whatever. for the animation, uh-huh. I did do screen grabs mm. for 512. I, I have like a, a little script that does that for me. And then for the works that I hand rendered, yeah, I generate it through the tool and I do a screen grab. And then I 
measure it all out on the board and mark it all in pencil and then paint it. Follow the Instagram. You can see, I love your Instagram. You're always posting like, you know, the actual tape and pencil and all that process. And how important is it that you're doing it? And what is that like to, to render it by hand? So, um, it mostly was important for me to do it in that I didn't want to make anyone else have to do it because it's really a pain in the ass. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, but it's not super important, I don't think, that that has to be me. And for the pieces in Honor Fraser, I did have an assistant helping me with it. Mm-hmm. But I have to say the part that, um, if there's one part that is sort of important for, for me to be doing, like I feel like the, the thing that makes it what it is more than anything else is not actually putting paint on the board, it's taping out all the shapes. Mm-hmm. That is most of the labor. And, and to me, you know, actually doing the work, like 90% of it is putting tape down and ripping tape up afterwards. Mm-hmm. So like I was saying, I, I did have an assistant uh, help me with this one because we had a, a compressed time frame. but that's the first time I've worked with somebody else. And it was really interesting working with somebody who actually comes from a painting background <laughs> and the kind of perspective that they brought on, on doing that type of work. Because something that I started doing, like maybe in the past five years, I don't know, is paint or draw images from our from video. I sometimes do it for a piece, or sometimes just to think to think about it, because there's something about taking that information that has this whole history of like analog synthesizer, handmade, a performance, a recording. There's all this intimacy and history, and then it's this image that, you know, just looks like some cool abstract with, you know, RGB colors and patterns, Mm -hmm. and to zoom into it and kind of break down what is really happening in it and finding things that you wouldn't see at all in a video and maybe even in a kind of a, you know, a still image has become a real important part of what I do. And I don't know, you know, we're both kind of doing it that like, I love that you're calling it rendering. um, But just really, I really am thinking about it as I'm doing it. Yeah. So just going back to glitch for a minute, I I feel like the the whole Dither Studies project really feels rooted in in glitch for me. If I hadn't had this glitch practice in 2011, when I opened that file in Photoshop and and seen this pattern come out, I would have been like, oh, this isn't doing what I wanted it to do. I'm going to generate the image that I wanted. And it was really sort of like, oh, the computer did something surprising and interesting. Let me see what this is about. Let me try to, to reintroduce this type of error that, that produced this kind of system. But also the fact that the computer, even when it's under our control, even when it's doing what we want, we intentionally create the dither. It's very unpredictable in ways that feel very sort of alien to, to our way of thinking. But also by hand rendering it, I'm going to introduce a level of errors that were not in the original piece, right? There's there's no way to get it perfectly. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a machine carrying this out. The triangles are not going to all be the same size. There's going to be little pencil marks left mm-hmm. behind. And for me, that kind of just reaffirms that, that meeting of human thought in the machine by actually doing it by hand. But because my background was not in painting, and I didn't really know how to sit down and start doing a painting, I reached out to a bunch of the people who had worked on the Solowit pieces oh, yeah. at Mass Mocha, and, you know, their names are all just up there on the wall. Uh, you, able to, to so you mean the wall drawings that are currently in the retrospective at Mass Mocha? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that room with the three floors of, of Lewitz. And so I asked them, you know, how did you do this? Like, how does resist painting work? And, and what kind of prep did you do on the wall? And what kind of... And so they gave me a lot of 
details, of, you know, because there's, there's Lewitt's instructions, but then there's all the other things that you also have to do. And that, that's a whole other conversation about that sort of, um, that goes beyond the, the way that there's, there's Lewitt's instructions, but then there's also all the other sort of unsaid instructions that have to be followed for the piece to sort of work. And part of it is that the people who actually carry out the work of doing it kind of shape how that piece is going to be painted for then on. And a lot of those people are sort of undercredited. And I, I think it's important to, to, to give them credit. Danielle, before you continue, do you mind sure. just giving us an example of what kind of things you need to do to make, like, what is it? Is it a ground preparation? I mean, what is yeah. it there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I paint on, on wooden boards, which is a little bit easier than, than a wall because a wall can be very uneven. But yeah, there's a lot of the prepping of the wall. But it, it was also things about what what's the best kind of tape to use for this? How did you seal it properly? How did you... So yeah, that, that kind of thing. Got it. I love uh, the talking talking with painters. Sometimes I talk to painters too. <laughs> you know, there's a different knowledge about how to oh, make yeah. physical things that we don't. You know, it's very technical. Yeah, yeah. and that's that, that's the thing. It's mm-hmm. we think of it as a kind of a technological art. I mean, it's. Can I ask both of you a little bit of the affinities you feel in each other's work? Like what, you know, we've talked about. We've been touching on a lot of some of these things, mm-hmm. and we've talked about it. But I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Like, first of all, how you both met but then also just sort well, of like in terms of your own work, how you see sort of combines and what ideas you think are more maybe overlap or, or common interests. Well, I definitely heard about Lovid quite a bit when I, when I was starting out before, before I even like saw your work. But I, I think that you were very influential for a lot of artists of, of my generation. And also you hosted some artists when they first moved to the city, which I think is interesting in terms of the, the, the whole glitch thing, a few artists who are associated with glitch especially. And I think that I first met you at that at that show, that 2013 show. I think so. So we, we had started this whole conversation discussing the combine and, and discussing making physical pieces. I think it's particularly interesting for, for you because you're coming from this performance space. And in terms of the textiles that you're making, it also sort of connects back to other sort of I guess that these are tapestries and not really wearable, but you've done a lot of stuff that, that are wearable pieces and that connect to the, the wearable tech stuff earlier that are not textile at all, but sort of perhaps grew into the, the textile stuff in some way. Yeah. So I think of the word relics a lot. I don't know if this is a word that you think about. So I grew up in Israel and I'm a secular Jewish. So the idea of relics is really important in the way I see my identity in my heritage. You know, in Israel, you grew up with just a lot of really ancient stuff, you know, ruins. And and uh, I always was really drawn to uh, the impact of time on physical objects um, and touch. And I've really incorporated that into a lot of work that I do, whether it's digital or or physical, this idea that something is worn and torn and has experience in the real world. And a lot of the the tapestries and the garments have had this connection as a relic for something that has materialized, a digital culture that has materialized into the physical space, physical bodies. And so the garments, I started doing mostly some kind of costumes, different costumes for our performances. Our performances have always been like audiovisual performances with these elaborate instruments uh, or with dancers. I made some costumes for dancers as well. And then more in the past few years, I've started making wearables, uh, kind of limited edition wearables, some scarves and shirts 
and again, they exist in this kind of between merch and materialization of video, really, and the idea that I want to take it that digital culture out in the world. Uh, it's funny because, you know, like digital fashion, but not in a way that it's, you know, in the three-dimensional kind of 3D rendering, but really taking it from the computer into the physical world and what that looks like, how it looks with the physical body, with real skin. I think I'm just really always interested in that layering of um, digital and physical. And then more recently, I did, I started doing commissions for, to make talis, which is a Jewish cultural item it's called you know a prayer shawl something that people can wear a synagogue or in special occasions and i use my lovid fabric you know it just has these patterns and colors to make these really um in some cases traditionally designed garments and do these kind of it's called the tzitzit at the end that has these super specific knotting that you kind of would be into it right there's a whole obviously mathematics and language and meaning to everything and kind of setting your intention and to me performance really is that space of intention it is a place like you are in your studio making work or you are in public making work and being that presence that you feel with the audience and with the making of art is something that I just keep going back to again and again and want to recreate in many cases in everything I do and the hug series the hug zone tape series and the nfts in many cases are like that they're supposed to really each of them this moment of touch and connection and presence and togetherness in a time that you just, you know, uh, we see so much solitude. Can I ask a little bit of Tally? Because I think that's so interesting you brought up relics, because I think a lot of performance artists use relics as a way to sort of like, it's almost like the ghost of the performance in a way. And you mentioned the relics like being in Israel, but there, there sort of, there's a timelessness. And in the digital space, there's kind of more of a planned obsolescence nature to relics sometimes like meaning like they sort of have an age associated with them maybe because we're too close to them i don't know but it's just i'm curious about that relationship and how you see them differently or yeah i think we are too close to them i think it's a little hard to see it right now i guess i'm my intuition towards technology is that it's a part of our natural world it is not separated from it and so it will, it, it too will degrade and age and evolve. And, you know, there is a kind of fantastical kind of, you know, parallel kind of future ideas to it too. What What is going to happen? How are things going to degrade? I mean, to me, for me, making those things also physical and seeing what happens to them in, in the real world, whether they're worn or are hung as these relics of, of a virtual space. Yeah, I, th- I think that it's an extension of 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 the of time as we've experienced so far. Often relics, though, are connected to that, say, a religion or tra- traditionally. So there's an ideology, right? And I'm curious, like, so what is the ideology here? Do you know? Is it like when we talk about the virtual space or we talk about the digital spaces? Mm-hmm. Uh, I just love to think about that because I think those ideas are at the foundation of both of your works in some ways. I think that's more. I think of it more of a society, a society, a relic from a society, from a civilization that maybe doesn't exist anymore. Often cases not, you know. And if you have a scrap of fabric that you, you know, you can tie all these stories and histories to and 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 events, but there was a human body that wore this particular garment and had human experiences. To me, that's really part of what it is yeah 
so I write about programming languages uh, as an art medium that I recently wrote about for Hyperallergic. And there's a lot of people who, who write programming languages that kind of challenge, kind of default ideology of, of code, the sort of accepted norms of, of code. People like John Corbett, who created a programming language where you write in the Cree language instead of English, for instance. Um, so I think a lot about ideology and code, because code is something that people pretend doesn't have an ideology, but of course it does. Uh, like photography, like a lot of things, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Like video. I mean, but, you know. but, it's, but it's more like saying that the camera has an ideology, you know? Like people think of the programming language being being like a camera, but we know that, for example, like color film had an ideology because... That's right. And, and so there are, the ideology can find its way in, into tools. And when you make that intentional by designing programming languages that make those apparent or that challenge them in a very open way, you can get to a really interesting space. The other thing that sort of occurred to me, because I, I, I don't, you know, we're talking about, about religion, you know, in the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition, right? God creates through language uh, at the beginning of the Bible. And the closest thing that we have to creating something through pure language is, is code, because code is, is the language that, that makes things happen in this sort of immediate way. I want to go back to that what you were saying about ideology. Yeah. Um, can you can you say that uh, can elaborate more? Because I, sure. I want to make sure that I have the right. Sure. Answer. Well, I mean, I think in the case we're talking about, like relics in Israel, where you know the Christianity is an ideology, right? You know, and it's sort of like they're often fragments of this larger ideology, and that's what makes them kind of precious and what reason they're sort of held up. And anyone who's gone has seen these relics; they're pretty underwhelming, honestly, most of the majority of them. But it's the ideologies that sort of like brings them this power. And I think contemporary art often has an aspect of that, right? Like with conceptual art, like you can see a urinal, but if it's Duchamp's urinal and we know the idea or like the way it's sort of evolved and the thoughts behind it and the ideas and the philosophical ideas, it sort of has a different kind of connotation for us. Yeah. And I, I think it's really, you're correct to point out, that, um, you know, the things that are preserved, you know, there is meaning obviously and significance to what are the things that are preserved and and protected and put in museums i guess i'm if there's an ideology it is to lean into vulnerability if that makes sense in the technology or art and tech world we definitely cycle through utopia and dystopia and i guess to me it's always not this kind of healthy skepticism but also really not seeing technology and the human body is something that would evolve together as a kind of to represent endless power or dominance, which I think obviously that's a common thread, but really through empathy and community and humanity. And it seems sort of obvious, but it's really not when you're thinking of, of digital digital world. I mean, if you look at the NFTs and the representation of human bodies in it, it's pretty obvious what a lot of the direction is going, this kind of superhumans avatars. So I think glitch philosophy as we define it is really tied into that uh, ideology. Yeah, I mean, I think with, with relics, especially architecture, where it's something in a, in a public space, is that it, it accumulates meaning, you know, especially as different... Different groups conquer an area and something, a space can take on different meanings from all the different groups that have lived there. And it's it's seeing that history and it is what really sort of gives it that richness and what makes it really interesting. Because yeah, without that, like you're saying, Krog, it's like, that it just becomes something that's, that's sort of, uh-oh, it's just this object. It's, it's not really all that interesting on its own. 
And I, I think that when we're talking about technology, some of these things, uh, being sort of aware of how these are being presented and, and what the ideology is at the moment is always, it, sometimes it's a little bit difficult. Sometimes we need a little bit of space from that. And, and sometimes those things will only become apparent over time. And we'll look back on, you know, purely digital things in like 50 years, we'll be like, oh, that, that's sort of what this was about. Because it, it'll start, start to become somewhat determined in the way that it's recorded historically. I agree. I think also, you know, sometimes you make a piece and it has to like sit there for 10 years. It has to wait for its moment. And that's, I guess, maybe when I think of relics, they are something, you, it's going to age one way or another. <laughs> and um, part of, for me, what it is to make work, and maybe it is related to the performance experience, is to let go in some way. Yeah, it's also, you know, over time as an artist, it's sort of like, okay, these things that I made at a certain time, they don't really sort of make sense to me anymore as of who I am right now. And there's the whole thing of sort of editing your, you know, editing your stuff. This, this doesn't really speak to me anymore. This is no longer who, who I am as an artist. So that whole sort of de- defining yourself too, I think ties into that as well. Wait 20 years, you'll see, maybe it was the same. <laughs> I know for myself, you know, there's there's certain projects that I've taken offline because I'm just like, okay, this is not interesting anymore. I'm, I'm getting rid of this. You haven't really done that. My website has been an issue because I've only, I'd also, I'm a technical based artist. I don't know how to do anything with technology except for like, you know, what I do. You know, so I've always relied on, uh, you know, young, enthusiastic people to update my website. But I've kind of given up on a website because it's all on Instagram and, you know, people... Really? You've given up on a website? No, we have a website, but I've given up on updating it because I have... There's, like, if someone wants to look at work, it, like, exists other places, you know. Right. I maintain it through other institutions that have more People have to actively recent. go to a website. Yeah, they They're have, have to actively go for it. Yeah. It's very rare that someone's like, oh, I found your website. <laughs> it's a scam if they... But before me, it was, it was Ben Finerad and did the Yes, Ben Finerad, right? yes. So, and um, we've had, we've been very lucky to have uh, just a host of amazing interns and assistants over the years and many of them have gone to do amazing things and yeah it's been a great thing so let's talk a little bit about projects you're working on now and what is the importance of networks and friendships in the art world and in this space particularly because i think i just like to dig a little bit into that you know because i think we don't we talk about the work as if it's sort of disembodied sometimes you know it's sort of like this thing over here but it's very much part of these networks and these like lives and how they we overlap. So I just love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, I actually, I, on the way here, I had this thought. Um, I, I kind of have an obsession with what do people outside of the art world think of art, you know? And it's like a, it's like we have a problem because most people don't know or care about art. Like this is how I feel. This is me, you know, just verbalizing my inner thoughts. Sure. <laughs> and what I was thinking coming here is, I think most artists live in an art bubble, right? We usually only hang out with artists, so we don't know. And I, I've been sort of fortunate and unfortunate to have a kind of double life. Right? I know a lot of people outside of the art world. And so their relationship to me, my artists are my family, you know, artist friends are family. They're people who understand you the most that you can, not long ago, I, you know, if I want to like think, talk something through, I would reach out to Daniel or anyone else to go on, on a phone call or grab a drink and you just kind of you know, you, you you think things through. Um, but then I, I actually really learned to appreciate my non-art world friendships and encounters because 
if I can't make a case to what I do to them, then I, I, I feel like that's that's an issue for me at this point. Why? Um, because I don't know if it's sustainable for us to just exist in our own bubble without mm. expanding in some ways. Uh, you know, there's for many, for financial reasons primarily, you know, in America, we haven't made a, I mean, because our art world in New York is so big, we kind of feel like we don't really need anyone else. That's such a good point because I think art people often, I feel like there's two worlds. One is, one is people think our field is much bigger than it is. Yes. And I think that's really kind of incredible to me. People think it's, oh yeah, everyone's interested, you know, in, in art. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's this kind of fine line we walk. But I, to speak to your point, I think that's an interesting thing that I've been thinking a lot about and something I try to sort of help people understand is often art, people don't understand we have to build our audiences yeah it's not really their responsibility you know i mean i i and they I don't have, exist necessarily no, no, they, I, you know for and this is a very american kind of niche conversation sure. but um i have a lot of friends who are you know academics they're highly educated you know people uh they read the new york times they never look at the art section and never never yeah. only if art intersects with other issues in the newspaper they will know about it now we all know that art intersects with every walks of life, right. but it's not. It's but not it might also be the discourse. way the New York Times. Writes, it's the way the New York Times. And I'm just Tell giving. Yeah. You know, no, no, an, I'm just using example. that as an example yes. because I think this is when you say like people aren't inter uh, interested in art. I think it's partly because the conversations are framed around money, and well, also they're framed in spaces that they don't feel comfortable entering, or That's they right. don't want to enter. They don't know that it's for them. It's not just around money. It's 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 everything is you know the New York Times. But I would have, say they're connected. That's the sure, thing. You know, sure. it's like it's like you walk into a museum and. It screams money. Do you know? It screams class. It's. I mean, it does scream that it's, often. It's. It screams know? money. It screams class. And there is a kind of you know you can be conspiratorial thinking about it and saying, well, it's a long kind of a long term project to have less funding, less government funding for the arts, right? If you make it less, if people, and they're not maybe intentionally, but that is in many cases the result right. of like public institutions and 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 funding instead of. You know, and of course, in New York, we have this luxury of having an amazing public art program, but it's not the case. And I live in Long Island, so I have a very suburban Long Island perspective on this topic. No, I mean, I think that's all legit. Daniel? Yeah, so I, I, I do a lot of work in sort of programmer culture that's a little bit sort of outside the, the art space. And a lot of times the audience, especially for my SLing projects, are not really, it's not really art people, it's, it's, it's programmers. And some of the programmers who, who make SLNGs, so th these are programming languages. Esoteric languages. Esoteric languages. Right. Languages that are intentionally not practical. That sort of challenges. Sounds like art to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, the, the way I, I call them esoteric codes is, is um, systems that challenge uh, computational norms. So the thing is that um, as soon as you start talking about these programming languages in, in sort of cultural terms, okay, what is this actually doing besides what it tells the computer to do? What is the human interaction with this? What, what is this about? What is the story with this language? We're getting into the art space, wh whether people like it or not. <laughs> and so I've had to be very 
careful not to label things as art when the person really sort of objects to it. Although mostly people are sort of mostly people are sort of okay with it for, for the most part. So why do people arch their backs when you say art? I mean, like, what is it? What 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 is it? Is that well, what you mean? The thing is that it's sort of like okay, this is our this is what we do. This is our space, and you're coming in here with your art talk, and you're going to ruin it. That that's the thing you're taking away from us. That that's the first thought. And usually, I can get through that by just talking about the work not in very technical language, because I feel like that's too off-putting to people outside of their community, but also not introducing a whole other type of jargon, which is the, mm-hmm. which is the art talk into it. But like, you know, David Medore, he's, he's a mathematician, and he's making these programming languages that can solve impossible problems. They, they can count to infinity. They solve the halting problem, which, you know, Turing proved was impossible. And it's all a valid language and it all works. It's just that it requires a computer that's infinitely large that we can't build in our universe. So to me, like the fact that he would go to all the work to design this whole thing, and to, to me, that is an art piece. And it, it's a pretty brilliant art piece in some, in some ways. And furthermore, I feel like it gets into a certain sort of conceptual art territory that goes beyond what a lot of digital artists are, are focused on right now. Like, I feel like that... Especially the the whole NFT thing, I think, has brought our attention back to the kind of digital object hood that works really well within the NFT space. Mm-hmm. Images and, and repeating gifts that are very sort of, we receive very sort of passively and we, we can look at it on our phone. And that sort of reaffirm aspects of physical objects that are just now in the digital, they're just now in the digital space. It, it's very different from something that's sort of an open-ended concept that consists of some description and and a compiler that you can't actually run. And so I really like talking to people who, who work in that space because I think they really sort of expand digital practice in a way that's very interesting. And in terms of, of, of you and me, because we both come from you know stuff that, that sort of goes really beyond objects. I feel like mm-hmm. our, even though our more recently we've been working in objects, it comes from a background that that really sort of was not built around around the object. For, for, for you, really, a lot of it around performance, and, and for me, for these, these interactive pieces and, and languages and so on. One thing that good that's been happening with NFTs <laughs> is that it has, I feel, a shift with people's interest in art, and whether it's digital art or in general, it sort of a penetrated people's attention in a way that it hadn't before. Mm. And maybe until NFTs became a thing, exactly, it's a money thing, maybe, but I think people, I mean, honestly, most people, if you say that you're an artist, they think that you paint something, and you know, they, they don't have a very complex idea of all the different things it could be. And maybe they don't care about painting. Maybe they actually really like animation and digital art. They just don't know that it's a thing that people do, you know, do that kind of work. And so somehow with this, if I talked to before about the electronic art as being a very kind of expansive definition of art, NFTs in some cases, even though it's very narrow and kind of flat, what spaces it happens, I think it does kind of open up the conversation of what can exist as an NFT in many cases. Mm. So, you know, there's lots of different genre and you can kind of like, you know, the show that we're in, the Digital Combines is one way. And, you know, it does bring in, you know, for like 20 years, we were talking about who's going to collect digital art. Why do tech people don't want to buy digital art? I mean, for whatever reason, this is appealing to people. It, it, it is money. It is, a, you know, the ad campaign, whatever you want to call it. But I think it has had 
an effect on outreach. And we were exploring ideas of Jewishness in art, you know, or just even what this means, right? And honestly, I don't keep in my head a list of who's Jewish or not in the art world. Like, that's not a, oh, that's not a list that's I how keep. That's you're not a Jew. That's yeah, how you probably. can tell. Exactly. Exactly. Maybe that's it. So, but I would love to, because, you know, one thing I've noticed, and, and one of the things I'd love to ask both of you is, what does that mean? Like, in terms of your Jewishness in the work, but I also find there aren't a lot of artists that sort of identify that way outwardly. And I'm curious why you think that could be. And is it because, you know, even Daniel, when we first talked about this, you're like, well, I'm not sure about the Jewishness in my work. <laughs> Do you know? But it's like, and and I just, I would just love to like, think about that a little bit. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel like my, my work to me feels very Jewish, but I'm not, it's very hard for me to articulate why. <laughs> and so I was thinking about this when we started this conversation. First of all, I think the flavor of compulsiveness that I have in my work is so much of my work is about a kind of digital compulsiveness. It's, it's a flavor that feels Jewish in the way that it's carried out. But I also feel like there's there's a connection to the the type of conceptualism that I do. Like I, I feel like there's the connection with Lewitt. Yeah, you know, I was gonna say, <laughs> um, just, just feels very natural to me. But it's it's very hard for me to articulate why because there's it's it's not very obvious to me beyond the sort of geometric connection exactly what it is. But I think part of it is also about language and especially language and code and the way that that functions in Jewish thought. Well, there's something about the instructionalism of Lewitt that's very Jewish in a sense that it's, you know, like verbally passing on information like the from, you know, in storytelling and passing on a tradition, something that exists in a kind of conceptual sphere. So we were actually in a couple of exhibitions at the Jewish Museum and like first one I think it was 2008. It was a great project that Andy Engel curated. And that when not when we were invited to that, I was like, huh. <laughs> is, that, is, that, is our work Jewish? So, and, you know, Kyle is also my, my husband. And we're definitely strongly identified as Ashkenazi Jews, but only uh, culturally, we're not religious people. And that's also kind of, I guess, a complicated thing in America to thread the needle on, I think. Mm -hmm. in, in Israel, it's a much easier thing to understand. I think there's a lot of kind of comparison to Judaism as a religion, and my experience of it is more as my as an identity and more of an a ethnicity. culture, ethnicity, right. a culture. Um, I'm more drawn to it's almost like very ancient traditions that celebrate kind of I have like kind of pagan rituals celebrate um, you know uh, the seasons and the harvest and the moon and and I think that is presence in, present in the work. I think performing audiovisual abstract noise is like going to shul. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's beautiful. I love that. But both of you seemed surprised when it was brought up initially in your work. You said in 2008, Daniel, you still sort of like figuring that out. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious why that is. Oh, because you were like, why is it not? Yes. Why is it not cool to be Jewish? Well, I mean, or like think of it as an integral part. I mean, you say it's part of your identity, mm -hmm. but somehow, and, and I don't think this is unique to Jews necessarily, but I think with Jewishness, it seems to be uh, an interesting example because of the fact that it sort of is transnational. It's sort of like many different identities, many different sort of like ways to express secular, religious, many types of religious. So, I would just love to think a little bit about that, like if there mm -hmm. are any thoughts you have about that. Do you know the term bageling? Yes. When you bagel someone? Yep. Is like when you out yourself as a Jew. 
And so I think in so many, for so many reasons of survival, Jews in diaspora are programmed to not out themselves. It's our kind of survival mechanism. So that might be an instinct Mm. that we we don't know we're conflicted about it right and especially people who are not religious we don't you know we i'm not a part of like i don't go to any any of that um so maybe there's something you don't want to be put in that box because that box is really complicated and it comes with a lot of weird it's a lot of stereotypes baggage. and preconceptions from other people yeah i mean right? i grew up in israel i lived there for 19 years and i left because it was it was too much for me mm-hmm. i i you know so Maybe there's something about that, and you know, a lot of a lot of the work I do is uh, is abstraction, which Daniel, you know, also works in. I, I just think I just think that the the thing about identity of that type of identity is that it is sort of very pervasive in in, in the work that you make, whether it's something that you're dealing with consciously or not. I feel like at this stage in my career, my Judaism is not something that I'm really expressing consciously through my work. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to do that in the, in the future because it is something that it is something that I think about. But it, in, in the way that it's shaped my work up to this point, it's like beyond a certain sort of fascination with with language and a certain type of abstraction. It's it's hard for me to say exactly what it is that comes across as Jewish in my work, and yet I feel like the work feels Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, I know it's it's a frustrating answer, but I feel like that's like that's where I'm at right now. With can, can I yeah. ask? Okay, mm-hmm. go ahead. Sorry, no, tell me. No, and please. and I'm I'm going to say that maybe I'm leaning more on it because I work with tapestry and fabric, and that is historically a very Jewish industry. And, you know, I work with patterns and repetition, and I've had conversations with different people coming to the studio and might see other traditional influences on it. Because if it's patterns and it's geometry, people right away, you know, say, oh, it's this, it's it's batik, it's the, you know, and so I actually have been, spent a lot of time looking at traditionally crafted Jewish carpets and thinking about, you know, tradition of introducing, you know, fruit into tapestry design and kind of thinking through that tradition and labor and, you know, and all that. And so um, maybe because of the the kind of work I'm doing right now, uh, I don't, it's, it's not present in the work, but I am, I am thinking about, about that as a kind of um, a way to think of my personal heritage and what I bring into the work as someone working within the fields of technology and tapestry. Daniel, what do you think in terms of your own kind of because you know the way you sort of make it you make it sound like it's like do you make non-Jewish work too? Like you know it's like He's a Talmudic scholar. You know, that's why I just I, I guess I'm just trying to sort of like dig in a little bit to kind of understand because I think this is so true of so many people in different ways. And I think in this case it's just uh, you know, Jewishness, right? So there's always been this connection between between language and, and myth, right? Like language gives us a certain type of power. And, you know, like Ernst Gassira wrote about this this whole thing about how the way that something can symbolize something else was often mistaken pretty much in every society around the world as having a certain control over something over something else. And that's why you have something where a lock of hair of somebody would be used in a spell to affect that person and so on. It's sort of a, a this mistaken belief, the symbolism that we use actually has real effects. And kind of the flip side of that is that when we talk about, when we talk about God or gods that they have to sort of escape language in some way, so they're not contained by by that language. They're not locked in, and different religions have different ways of doing that. Like 
in some religions, a, a god might have hundreds of names as a way of sort of escaping belonging to any one of those names directly. And there's, you know, there's this prohibition in Judaism around s- saying the, the real name of God or sometimes insisting that we don't really know what the real name is because it would give us a certain power that we shouldn't have and God has to sort of be undescribable. And that whole idea of, of negative theology where you can only talk about what God isn't rather than what God is, I think that while that's part of both some Jewish thought and some Christian thought as well, I, I feel like it, it, it feels like a very sort of Jewish way of, of, of thinking about of thinking about God. And so that for me, that whole thing of, of the places that language can't go, I think is really central to, to my work and, and my thinking. And especially in terms of, of code where where language has this immediate power to do something and the things that it can't do are, are very interesting to me and the ways that we can't really sort of quite control it, right? Because it, we think about, about the sort of mythology around Judaism too, like like the golem, right? It's brought to life through through words, through language. And golem is the spirit, the sort of like it's a. The how do you describe it? Yeah, it's a clay in. monster. Right, a clay right? monster, but it's sort of like it's sort of a spirit-like figure, or or maybe in ghost-like figure, but it's not quite. Well, anyway, am, am I wrong to say that it's the one where they wrote the truth? There's like actually there's actual language as a part of it where it had the word truth. And then they took out. I mean, it's all right. It's all kind of Hebrewism. You have to write is, the right yes. word in Hebrew, put yes. it in its mouth, yeah. and then it, it, that's Hebrew what sort is of it to code. Life. The idea that it language is life is very embedded in that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I feel like those are the ideas that my work connects with mm-hmm. the most from from Judaism. But on the top, I mean, if obviously you know there are Jews from all over the world, and they're each very different, and it's like a spectrum of identities. And so, where did you grow up, Daniel? And what kind of... Oh, so, yeah, I, I, I grew up here. I grew up outside of Boston. Did you go, like, to... Bar- did you have bar mitzvah? I, I had, and, like, yeah. did you go to Hebrew school? I went to and- Hebrew school. I had confirmation <laughs> and bar mitzvah it, it, for, for a reform temple, a, a pretty liberal, egalitarian reform temple. And you grew up, in like, among other Jewish kids, would you say? It was... Yes, I lived in a suburb that was <laughs> most of my class was Jewish, and my partner now is Jewish also. Because I do feel like American Jews have are very different than Israelis, and I think in America you grew up your Jewish identity is often formed around a synagogue and around religion, and for Israelis it's not like that at all. And and my family were like, you know, socialist Zionists when they came and they were all about labor and um, land and language. It was, you know, my grandparents didn't know any holidays. So it was non-religious intentionally. So I don't have that. I think that's part of what it is. I think that, you know, if you don't feel religious, you're not a religious person and that's what you see as Judaism, then you don't feel So, but how are you? How's your Judaism, Ms. Preston? Yeah, then it's it's a lot more about... um, this kind of tribal identity, you know, just kind of recognizing where my ancestors are from, what they've, where they've lived and what experiences they've had um, and what connection they have to objects and stories and songs and, and language. Great. We're wrapping up. So I would love to sort of maybe one last question each of you ask each other. I would love to end up that way because I think this is really at the end of the day. I mean, I feel like I've learned so much about both of you. So thank you. But I would love each of you to ask a question that you've always wanted to ask the other person. I would never, I were afraid to ask. Or or maybe, maybe just like maybe this conversation sort of brought up for you that you're like, oh, I've never thought about asking it that way. Who wants to start? 
Well, I um, this hasn't come up much in a discussion, but when we talked about NFTs, something you said about the monetary aspect and putting like a price, this kind of idea of pricing, and you were just saying about like giving things for free. You were saying that you were publishing your your you know wanting to make it, and so I do wonder how you navigate between those two spaces of you know selling work, but also being kind of open source, um, if you want to call it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that different different work functions somewhat in different communities for me. You know, I, I work with a gallery and I would not bring to my gallery my like an SLA project. I, I just feel like that would be ridiculous because first of all, I have no idea how to show it in, in a gallery space. And there would be no point in trying to sell it. It's just sort of like, so just just for an example, because I, I, I know we've been talking about Turk languages a little bit, but it might not be very clear to people. I created a programming language called Folders and there's no text to write code in this language. You put folders inside of other folders and the combination of how many folders are in each of the folders is the code. In that way, you know, you can have the Hello World program, I think is about 150 folders in, in a certain special combination. And you can just arrange your hard drive that way. And, and now if you run it within this, this language, it'll print Hello World to the screen. So that's a project that, you know, I put it online, I kind of share it with people. Eventually, so I, I wrote it for, for Windows intentionally because in Windows, folders take up zero bytes, supposedly. So all your code takes up zero bytes. And it, it was just sort of this thing of like, okay, now you can store all of your data as folders and all your code as folders and, and your hard drive's infinitely large, which of course it isn't really. But then someone was like, okay, well, I don't use Windows. Uh, I use a Mac. So they wrote another version of the folders compiler in, in Python. And then people wrote their own programs and folders and kind of took it in other directions. And the thing is that like, what's great about doing that type of work is that it, it really is about a community. It's, it's about how people take your idea and bring it in directions you weren't really expecting. And that's like the whole fun of it. So to sort of monetize it in some way would just be very odd to me. I mean, I could say, okay, I'm going to take the original distribution of this and, and stick it an NFT on it. But it would just sort of like, it, it, it would just be, it, it wouldn't really be the, the work itself, right? It would be, I don't know, what, what would you call it? Like a, a, like a, a collectible that's, that's, that's attached to it. Um, or a, a, like a souvenir. It would be a folder souvenir, right? <laughs> like the same way that, that Tim Berners-Lee, when he sold the original World Wide Web code as an NFT, it's not like he sold the web. <laughs> He's, he, 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 you know. But he would if he could. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's it's something that has some historic value and it's interesting, so so you buy it. So I, I just I don't think that something like that needs to be monetized. And, and I also feel like the, one of the things I really want to do is encourage more people to make work in that space because I think it's a really interesting space that really could use it, you know more people approaching it with a from a critical stance and, and doing some some really interesting, really take it in new directions. So that's very different than the type of stuff like the dither studies. So, so for dither studies, I have sort of the, the web version that anybody can use. They can produce certain images. And then there's the thing that I show in the gallery, which is the one that I've, I've hand rendered painstakingly and that, that has brings certain qualities to it through that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really keeping those two things separate. But I kind of want to turn the question back to you a little bit because you, you're, you're working with, with Postmasters now, but for... A long time. Which is a gallery here in Tribeca, New York, just in case people don't know. Go ahead. And I wonder if working 
Um, of course, you've shown work with with galleries. It's not like you're totally outside the. But but you you weren't working with a gallery directly in that way, and I just wonder if your art is different because you had those years and years of working in sort of experimental video space and spaces that are sort of somewhat outside the gallery system, and that that you weren't thinking so much in terms of the item that might be sold, and the way that that your artistic direction is has developed because of that. That's an emotional question. Actually, it's a t- triggering. It's a difficult question. It's so. Um, it's actually when you were when you were answering, I was thinking how brave it is to do that for an artist. What you're doing, right? I think we really are conditioned to think that we can choose one thing uh, and one world to operate in, and it's not very easy to maintain a practice that exists in different spaces. It's you know, it's it's really kind of a challenge. Of course, it's very hard to tell, to say kind of what if, you know. <laughs> um, it's really important for me to express the gratitude I have to for all the support from nonprofit institutions that I've received for so long. So I really don't want to diminish that. That's the thing. I think it's really important for me not to place, I think we tend to place commercial galleries in a different level than not-for-profit institutions. And, and I, I really, worry, really, really worry about that. I, I don't think that that's a good thing. However, it's not an easy transition. It's really not an easy transition. And it's because, uh, it's a, you know, we have the, the, our world's so big uh, and we're very fractured. So it's kind of like a completely different scene. You really have to work very hard, and I've had to work very hard to you know, have a foot in, 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 in all doors. <laughs> and not not just in not-for-profit, but, you know, we've done sh- work with, you know, the experimental music scene and then, you know, in Europe and, and you know, funding in New York State and all this stuff. Um, the one thing that I, I, I've started thinking about recently is the idea of value. How do we value an artwork in the commercial art world and in the kind of NFT space, there's a lot of talk about like value yourself, uh, you know, know your worth and sort of meaning putting a price tag on it. And when you work in a lot of these kind of transitions are really economic transitions. They're really about budgets. When you work with in the grant not-for-profit world, you work with a budget and your budget has to be at zero as a not-for-profit, meaning that you can't have more money left at the end. You have to show that you're going to spend all this money. And within the everything that has value is your labor and what impact you have on society, on anyone who's going to experience the work. The artwork in itself, in this kind of not-for-profit logic at the end, doesn't have monetary value. It is not budgeted that way. So this kind of sim- similarly simple thing that is really, I think, makes it hard for artists to move from one way of funding to another. And so I've sort of had to even get used to the idea that I'm not waiting for more funding to make work. <laughs> like, it was very hard for me in the beginning to say, I'm just going to have to make work. Because right away, you're like, where's the money going to come? Where's the, where's the piece going to go? Like, it still fills me with anxiety. So I don't know what would have happened. And we, we've had, you know, we've shown with galleries since the beginning. So it's not like this is, this is new. But this definitely, I've almost intentionally stopped applying for grants and in the past four or five years because I felt like I needed for 
needed to step away and let other people, you know, kind of make room for, but also needed to really focus, change my way of working. It, it does take that. It takes that. So, well, this was great. Yes. Thank you, Tally. Thank you, Daniel. I think this is a really uh, fruitful conversation. Thank you, Daniel, for, for choosing Tally to join us so we can have this conversation. So thanks so much. And I hope people will check out your sites and your work and the shows that are currently up in Los Angeles and New York. And Excellent. congratulations to both of you. Thank thanks you. for having us. The music this episode is Ultra Young Sherman Mix by Evian Christ and it's courtesy Warp Records. I'm Harag Vartanyan, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening. And go see art. <laughs>